One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Welcome to our podcast, my very own podcast this time. So this is just me alone rambling on about all kinds of tools in life that we can use, uh, all kinds of technologies, um, methods, practices, in order to fulfill our lives and um, to ease our lives sometimes, to rid ourselves from any unnecessary sufferings and to deal with life just how it is. And today I want to talk about the yoga and uh, yeah, a little bit about my history with yoga, what, um, yeah, where I'm coming, coming from and also where it has led me, why I am still practicing it and um, yeah, also maybe something uh, what you can gain out of it um, if you start adopting a practice for yourself. So, my first connection with yoga was back in the time when we were in Costa Rica. Lisa and me went for a month to Costa Rica um, in order to also participate at, a, at an ayahuasca ceremony. Ayahuasca is a plant medicine that is used by shaman, shamans um, in a shamanistic ritual um, by indigenous people and uh, today also by Westerners in order to treat all kinds of uh, mental, emotional ailments and problems. Um, but it was, it was also used um, and is still used by indigenous peoples and people and tribes in order to connect a community, in order to clear a community of any major conflicts, any traumas, um, any generational traumas and in the end to make the entire tribe stronger, more resilient and more connected. So this is about plant medicine um, and ayahuasca and what we had there, what we did there was called yoga waska which was a combination of yoga and the plant medicine ayahuasca. So this was the first time that we more or less practiced yoga on a more regular um, basis. So we, we, we had the ceremony there, we did the yoga waskat retreat um, and of course we didn't continue with our practice the first time but it was somehow an anchor what yoga can be and what yoga can do for us. So not long after that we decide that we go to Asia, specifically to Thailand, South Thailand to participate in a yoga teacher training. So this is a 200-hour uh, yoga teacher training which consists of all kinds of um, workshops, seminars, lectures about the anatomy, about uh, energy centers, about 
Of course, the history of yoga and the functions of yoga and the tree of yoga and um, all the philosophy around that, Ayurveda and of course the practical uh, Hatha Yoga, which is the, the, the physical the physical yoga that we somehow mistake for exercise, for physical exercise. So we do that for 30 days and after those 30 days I feel uh, not as expected uh, that I want to continue with yoga, rather the contrary. So I feel that I don't want to hear, do or talk about yoga for a long time just because of the fact that um, I was very unbalanced during those three 30 days, it's one month, as there was a lot of um, feminine energy in this group. And I felt that there was like a, a certain kind of masculine energy missing. So a rough workout, a one-on-one -on -one, um, competition with another person or another guy in that sense um, somehow a resistance from somewhere was was missing for me also because of the fact that our group was consisting of 99% women so after that I took on uh, a gym membership and uh, yeah went to the gym uh, just to balance it out a little and only half a year later or something I slowly picked on the practice again and also not regularly it was on and off and on and off and on and off but after a while I really looked through the hassle and the, the discipline and the Uh, yeah, and all the avoidance and saw the beauty of the yoga and I reached a point during the yoga and also after the yoga session where I felt and I knew that there is something so special, so sacred and so unique um, almost divine that I need to go after it and I need to focus more on the practice. So that's what I did. I continued, um, of course, with unregular practice further. Um, and at some point, this changed and I'm now in a place where I so much look forward to waking up in the morning to sit down for two to three hours and dedicate that time and that effort to, to myself, to yoga, to God and to the world. And um, yeah, the work that I do on a mat is very, very different every day. So whatever state you're in whatever things you come with they are going to get 
really looked at and um, worked on in the yoga session. So sometimes it's learning about patience, sometimes it's learning about willpower, sometimes it's learning about um, yeah, discipline, about letting go, and on self-love and so on. And it's not that you planned that before, but it's more or less something that evolves out of the practice. So that doesn't mean that I don't enter into the session without any intentions. So I set an intention before. Um, I light a candle and... Oh, yeah. Amalia is just getting closer and lying down on a pillow. So, yeah, uh, that's, um, that's somewhat the setting. I light a candle, I light some incense and uh, I set up a tea. So I have tea by my side and uh, yeah, I have a little altar in front of me and then some beautiful music that I can um, yeah, dive into. So that's the setting and then I start and then as I said, I go wherever it, it takes me and whatever I have to learn, I will learn on the mat. And I've come to the conclusion that whatever we learn in life, we can first learn on the mat. Because the mat is something so profoundly um, integrative, meaning you, let's say the, 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 the learning is patience. Yeah? So you are in your session, you do your flow, uh, your poses, and you feel that there is like just some restlessness, and there is no patience with yourself, with with the asanas, with the time, with the with the with the work you do there. Okay, so patience it is now, and it is not just a theoretical concept that ah okay I need to learn patience. No, you need to apply the patience directly in the poses so you are in a stretching pose and uh, maybe you experience some discomfort and in this in this pose okay apply patience apply um, self-love apply letting go and so on so it's an integration directly into your life and the practice on the yoga mat will have an effect on your day-to-day -day life and on your character. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the yoga for me um, in, a, in a, how to say, in a, in, a, in a very brief look. It is so much more. There's so much more of a philosophy, um, uh, a worldview or a, a way of living. Um, a teacher, a science, it is so much. And I don't really want to go too much into it, um, what it all means. The yo yoga is everything. Uh, and with that, everything is set already. 
so there is no need to explain much much more for that i can only encourage everyone to to try it to really dedicate some time every day to it it will not only benefit your life it will benefit uh, the, the 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 lives of the people around you and um, yeah it is a great teacher and just for that i uh, yeah i wish for you that you uh, yeah you find access or you discover an access point to this tool and science and technology which it is so yeah this was it um it was a short just a short episode about yoga my path of yoga and um yeah what's how i use it and how i see it uh, if you have any questions i'm happy to discuss with you of course anytime and until then have a beautiful week and we see each other and hear each other the next episode
that Jekyll did not want anyone to see, and which he regarded with a morbid sense of shame. As a consequence, Jekyll wrote, I concealed my pleasures, and stood already committed to a profound duplicity in life. Jekyll displayed a psychological insight. He was aware of the duality of his own nature and declared that man is not true one, but truly two. He could even hazard the conjecture that man is made up of a whole assortment of par-selves. That his personality is not single, but is like a village of people. An insight modern depths psychology corroborates. He saw this duality as thorough and primitive, that is archetypal and therefore present from the beginning as a fundamental aspect of man's basic psychological structure. Armed with this kind of psychological insight into himself, Jekyll might have gone on to great heights of conscious development, but failed to do so because of a fundamental psychological error, as we shall see. Hyde is described as young, full of hellish energy, small and somehow deformed. He is a juggernaut, not like a man, a person who evoked hatred in others at the very sight of him. He has black, sneering coldness and is incapable of human feeling and therefore is without any twinge of conscience and so is incapable of guilt. Hyde's youthfulness suggests that as the shadow personality of Jekyll, he contains unused energy. The shadow, as we have seen, includes the unlived life, and to touch upon the shadow personality is to receive an infusion of new, that is youthful energy. Hyde's small size and deformed appearance indicates that as the shadow personality Hyde has not lived very much in Jekyll's outer life. Having dwelt for the most part in the darkness of the unconscious, he is deformed in appearance, like a tree forced to grow among the rocks and in the shadow of other trees. Hyde's lack of conscience, described by Jekyll as a solution of the bonds of obligation, is also characterized as the shadow personality. It is as though the shadow leaves moral feelings and obligations up to the ego personality while he or she strives to live out of inner and forbidden impulses quite devoid of the mitigating effects of a sense of right or wrong. But perhaps the most important thing we are told about Edward Hyde comes from Jekyll's comment that when he first was transformed by the drug into Hyde. I knew myself to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil. At first, Jekyll has only seen in himself a certain gaiety of disposition, a pleasure-seeking side that might have led to mischief, but nothing more. But once he has become Hyde, he realizes he, he is far more evil than he, ever, than he ever supposed. From this description, it appears that the shadow personality begins with our personal dark side but at some point con contacts a deeper, more archetypal level of evil, which is so strong that Jekyll could say of Hyde that he alone among men was pure evil. In the hands of this archetypal evil, the pleasure-seeking mischief in which Jekyll wanted to engage soon led to truly satanic activity 
as exemplified in the hellish murder of Dr. Carroll, which was done for the pure joy of evil and destruction. We can see this same satanic, this same satanic quality emerging in those situations in which a person cold-bloodedly kills others, either in war or crime, without evident, rem evident remorse. It is an archetypal evil that both shocks and fascinates us and draws us with horrified absorption to the daily reading of our newspapers. C.G. Young once wrote that we become what we do. This helps us understand even more the reason for Jekyll's demise. Once he decided to be Hyde, even if only for a while, he then intends to become what? Hyde. The deliberate decision to do evil leads to, leads to our becoming evil. This is why out our out the darkest impulses of the shadow cannot be a solution to the shadow problem, for we can easily become possessed by or absorbed into evil if we try such a thing. This attests to the archetypal nature of evil, for it is one of the qualities of the archetypals that they can possess the evil, which is like being devoured by or made identical with the archetype. Jekyll himself becomes aware of this danger after he finds himself involuntarily turned into Hyde. This was an enormous shock to him. He had expected to be able to move from Jekyll to Hyde and back again at will, but now he finds that Hyde is taking over. His former confidence, which led him to say, the moment that shows I can be rid of Mr. Hyde, is now gone. His attitude shows a carelessness towards evil that predisposes Jekyll towards possession. It comes up again in the story in, in the story in the scene in which Jekyll sits in the park and reflects that he is, after all, like my neighbors, and compares himself favorably with other men, noting his active goodwill in contrast to the lazy neglect of others. Jekyll's careless disregard for the powers of evil together with his desire to escape the tension of the dual nature, paves the way for his ultimate destruction. So at this point in the story, Jekyll resolves to have nothing more to do with the Hyde part of his personality and even declares to Utterson, I swear to God, I swear to God, I will never set eyes on him again. I bind my honor to you that I am done with him in this world. It is all at an end. And Jekyll does try to have done with Hyde. He renews his old life, becomes more dedicated than ever to doing good works and also for the first time becomes devoted to religion as well. We must assume that Jekyll's devotion to religion means that he went through formal religious observances, perhaps joining a church of some kind. We know, of course, that Jekyll's religion is not sincere he knows nothing of God, but is hoping to find a formalized religion and in his own religious pretensions a defense against being overcome by Hyde. No doubt, many of us are using religion in this way, especially those religious creeds that decry man's sins, threaten the sinful man with punishment and encourage good deeds as a sign of salvation. This kind of religion tends to draw as members those persons who are consciously or unconsciously struggling to hold in check their shadow personalities. But the attempt does not work with Dr. Jekyll, and Hyde has now grown stronger within him. 
hive as the shadow personality continues to exist in the unconscious and is now more than ever struggling to be free. That is, to possess Jekyll's personality so he can live as he wants to. The dark side has been strengthened too much and the attempt to hold him in check and keep him locked in the basement of the psyche failed because Hyde is now stronger than Jekyll. So Stevenson is telling us that if living out of the shadow is not the answer, neither is the repression of the shadow the answer, for both leave the personality split in two. There is also Jekyll's insincerity and religious pretensions. Both his religion and his desire to have nothing to do any longer with Hyde stem from his desire for self-preservation, not from his moral feelings. It is not for spiritual reasons, but because he fears destruction that Jekyll wants Hyde contained. Underneath, there still exists his unrecognized longing for evil, as is evident by the fact that even in the midst of his great resolve to have nothing to do with Hyde, he did not destroy Hyde's clothes or give up the apartment in Soho. We could say that at this point, the only way Jekyll would have kept from being overcome by evil was if his soul were filled with a spirit more powerful than that of evil. But in allowing himself to become high, Jekyll emptied his soul and evil could take possession of him. Henry Jekyll's, fundam Henry Jekyll's fundamental mistake was desire to escape the tension of the opposites within him. As we have seen, he was gifted with a modicum of psychological consciousness more than most men, for he knew that he had a dual nature. He was aware that there was another one in him, whose desires were counter to his moral usual desires for the approbation of mankind. Had he enlarged this consciousness and carried the tension of the opposite within him, it would have led to the development of his personality. In the language we have been using, he would have individuated. But Jekyll chose instead to try to escape this tension by means of the transforming drug, so that he could do both Jekyll and Hyde, and have the pleasures and benefits of living out of both sides of his personality without guilt or tension. For as Jekyll, it is worth noting, he felt no responsibility for Hyde, for it was Hyde, after all, and Hyde alone that was guilty, he once declared. This gives us a clue to how the problem of the shadow can be met. What was Jekyll's failure may tell us where to go if the conclusion of our drama with the shadow is to be successful. Success may lie in the carrying that tension which Jekyll is accused. Both repression of the knowledge of the shadow and identification with the shadow are attempts to escape the tension of the opposites within ourselves. Attempts to lose the bonds that hold together within us a light and darker side. The motive, of course, is to escape the pain of the problem. But if escaping the pain leads to psychological disaster, carrying the pain may give the possibility for wholeness. Carrying such attention of the opposites is like a crucifixion. We must be one suspended between the opposites, a painful state to bear. But in such a state of suspension, the grace of God is able to operate within us. The problem of our duality can never be resolved on the level of the ego. It permits no rational solution. But where there is consciousness of a problem, the self, the imago dei within us, 
can operate and bring about an irrational synthesis of the personality. To put another way, if we consciously carry the burden of the opposites in our nature, a secret, irrational healing process that go on in us unconsciously can operate to our benefit and work power the synthesis of the personality. This irrational healing, healing process, which finds a way around seemingly insurmountable obstacles, has a particular feminine quality to it. It is the rational, logic, masculine mind that declares that opposites like ego and shadow, light and dark, can never be united. However, the feminine spirit is capable of finding a synthesis where logic says none can be found. For this reason, it is worth noting that in Stevenson's story, the feminine figures are few and far between, and when they do occur, they are seen in an exclusively negative way. There is no, not one major character in the book who is a woman. Jekyll, Enfield, Utterson, Poole, and the handwriting expert, Mr. Guest, Dr. Lanyon, all are men. The woman figures have only brief mention. There is the woman who cared for Hyde's apartment, an evil-faced woman, cold and witch-like. There is a brief mention of the frightened maid whom Utterson meets when he goes to Jekyll's house on the final night, who is described as hysterically whimpering. There is, of course, also the little girl who was trampled on, and the woman who groped around Hyde, who were wild as harpies. Even Hyde in the laboratory that finds the final night is described as weeping, as, as weeping like a woman or a lost soul. The only vaguely positive allusion, allusion to a woman or to the feminine is the maid who witnessed the murder of Dr. Carroll, but even she is said to have fainted at the sight. In short, the feminine comes out badly in Stevenson's story. It is cold and witch-like, weak and ineffective, or victimized, which suggests that the feminine spirit was rendered inoperative and was unable to help in the situation. Translated into psychological language, we can say that when psychological consciousness is refused, as Jekyll had refused it, the feminine part of us, our very souls, weaken and languishes and falls into despair, a tra tragedy for it is this very feminine power that can help find a way around what is otherwise an insolvable problem. A comment on Mr. Utterson is in order. The portrayal of Utterson is a testimony to the skill of Stevenson as a storyteller. For a while, the majority of the narrative is told to us through his eyes and experiences. He himself never introduces into the spotlight. His character is ardently drawn. We like Utterson. We can picture him in our minds. We can follow his thoughts and feelings and reactions, yet the spotlight of the story always shines through him onto the central mystery of Jekyll and Hyde, so that Utterson never takes over the center of the stage. Because of this, we may be inclined simply to dismiss Utterson as a literary device, a necessary figure to have so that the story may be told but not a character who is likely to have anything to teach us about the mystery of good and evil. But in fact, Utterson is more important than he seems. He is a human figure whose sensibilities are aroused by evil, and in whose consciousness the full story of good and evil, evil and shadow, finally emerges. He, re he represents the human being who has a sufficiently strong feeling function, that he is shocked by evil and can therefore resist being overcome by it. 
It's exactly this feeling function which enables a human being to react with horror at the depths of evil that was weak in Jekyll and totally lacking in Hyde. It is also necessary that evil eventually be known by someone. The doings of Jekyll and Hyde were a secret, but secrets have a way of trying to emerge. Every secret is propelled by hidden inner forces towards human consciousness, and for this reason, evil deeds eventually emerge into the awareness of human humanity in general. As some, or some in, someone in particular, notice, for instance, that early in the story, Utterson's mind is tortured by what he does not know, and he is unable to sleep. This is a sure sign that the unconscious is troubling Utterson, and is seeking to find a way to bring into his consciousness the dreadful and dark secret like Jekyll and Hyde. So in the story, it is Utterson whose consciousness becomes a container for the knowledge of evil, and thus he represents the ego that is most human and best. A kind of redemptive person whose dawning awareness of what is happening and horrified feelings provided human safeguard against the takeover of human life by the powers of darkness. But how about Dr. Lenin? He too came to see the nature of evil, but in the wrong way. Lenin had not solved out the mystery of Jekyll and Hyde as did Utterson, and when the full extent of evil broke in on him, it was too much for him. He saw evil too quickly and looked into it too deeply, without the necessary preparation or the necessary human support. And that is the other side of becoming conscious of evil. We must become aware of it, but to look into it too deeply and naively may give us a shock from which we cannot recover. The demonic drug that Jekyll concocted to achieve his transformation into Hyde is also worth a comment, especially in this present time of history when we are surrounded on all sides by drugs with mind-altering effects. I have often noted, in some instances at least, alcohol seems to change people from Jekyll to a Hyde personality. A person is one way until he or she takes a few drinks and then out comes the ugly side of the personality. In certain cases it may well be that at the bottom of the urge to drink is the struggle of the shadow to assert itself, just as in our story Hyde yearned for Jekyll to take the drug so he could live out his own dark life. We can also note that although the evil part of Jekyll's personality destroyed him it also eventually destroyed itself. No sooner was Jekyll completely possessed by Hyde than Hyde himself died by suicide. This too is instructive, for it tells us that evil eventually overreaches itself and brings about its own destruction. Evidently, evil cannot live on its own, but can exist only when there is something of good upon which it can feed. This was chapter five of the book Meeting the Shadow, the Hidden Power, the Dark Side of Human Nature, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thanks for listening.